This episode is sponsored by The Kings. Thank you for all of your love and support. This week on Steadfast. It seems to me that the proper approach, whenever anyone is suicidal for any reason, is suicide prevention, engagement, helping people through that darkness. And that's what's lost with this movement because it's transforming suicide from something that uh, we want to prevent and help people stay with us to a supposed public health good. Welcome to Steadfast. Welcome to Steadfast. Let's take your babies. What's up, everybody? Welcome to our final episode of Steadfast. I'm your host, Sammy Carroll, Education Coordinator at Life Choices Women's Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. It is time to say goodbye just for now. Maybe, maybe if God wills it, we'll have another episode. But for now, I don't have any other plans, guys. So it has been a joy and an honor to record these episodes and share it with you and talk to different people. I learned so much from so many people and I truly believe that I was supposed to do this podcast to spread a message and after this episode I feel like the message is pretty well covered. So kind of a fitting ending. My husband thinks this is hilarious and that it has kind of some poetic I don't know a poetic ending I guess but we are going to talk about euthanasia and assisted suicide. I feel like euthanasia and assisted suicide do not get talked about nearly enough, especially in the pro-life movement. I think that people associate the pro-life movement mostly with birth. And what I don't want people to think is that the pro-life movement is just anti-abortion. If you are pro-life, you should believe that every life is valuable at every stage. We are a womb to tomb people. So we have covered in this show quite a bit about the womb part, right? And what we can do about abortion, but we have not covered too much about the end of life. And that is where this episode comes in. There are so many people today that think that they have the right to end their lives on their terms. They don't want to suffer. They want to die of dignity. So I got the honor to talk to Wesley J. Smith today. I'm going to try to cover his vast career and accomplishments in a short period of time. So he is a lawyer and he is currently the chair of the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He is an author. He has written more than 14 books and many, many articles. He has been published in the New York Times, Newsweek, The Wall Street Journal, US Today, Forbes, The National Review. He has appeared on a thousand different television and radio talk programs including Good Morning America and CNN World Report, C-SPAN, Fox News, EWTN, so many. I, I just, when I look at his resume, I am slightly intimidated and so humbled that he joined me today to talk about this important topic that is not discussed nearly enough. He was even honored by the Human Life Foundation as a great defender of life for his work against suicide and euthanasia. So really, was there a better option for me to invite him to be our last guest and to speak about this topic. When I interviewed Jules Zapanica over a year ago, he said in that interview how the next hot topic was going to be euthanasia. And at the time, I was like, cool, I don't really know that much about it, but I, I believe you. And Joel, you were right. Um, I went to the National Right to Life Convention this summer, as many of you know. And at the convention, this was a huge topic. And I got to hear Wesley speak. And what really struck me was that this man lost somebody to assisted suicide and it changed the course of his life. He has fully dedicated his life to ending the culture of death. 
He has been promoting the culture of life for over 30 years. And I hope that you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy listening to him. For the last time, I'm going to talk to you about Seven Weeks Coffee. We are partners with Seven Weeks Coffee, named thusly because a baby is the size of a coffee bean at seven weeks. They are a pro-life coffee company. They give 10% of every purchase to a pregnancy resource center. And if you use our link in the show notes, 15% of your purchase will go to our education program here at Life Choices. And if you want 10% off of your purchase, you can use our discount code STEADFAST. I really appreciate everyone who has ordered coffee. I get an email every time someone uses our link and I just can't say thank you enough. This has been a game changer for our education program for fundraising. So I just want to say a big thank you and a big thank you to 7 Weeks Coffee for being our partners. All right, guys, without further ado, here is our final episode with Wesley J. Smith talking about euthanasia and assisted suicide. Well, Wesley, thank you um, for joining us. Welcome to Steadfast Podcast. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. How are you? Good. Like I said before, kicking a cold, but I am confident that the four shots of espresso that I had will help me. (laughs) We're just going to start off by you telling us about yourself. I've heard your story because I was actually at the National Rights Life Convention this summer. Um, But can you tell us how you came to be one of the top recognized experts on euthanasia and assisted suicide? And also just what about these topics drew you out of practicing law to devote your life to them? Well, it certainly wasn't anything I had planned. Uh, I had actually quit practicing law uh, well before I got involved in these issues. I um, uh, got involved with uh, writing consumer activist books. Uh, I wrote four books with Ralph Nader, for example. One was on aviation safety and and, uh, one was on how to buy insurance, this kind of thing. And when I was working on the last book that I wrote with Ralph, um, a friend of mine committed suicide under the influence of the Hemlock Society, and this was back in 1992. And the Hemlock Society today is called Compassion and Choices because they like euphemisms. But at the time, it was actually a much more honest organization (laughs) in that sense. And it was um, uh, publishing something called the Hemlock Quarterlies. And when my friend killed herself, uh, she was a 76-year-old woman named Frances. Uh, She was certainly not terminally ill. She needed a hip replacement, although I didn't notice any limps. Uh, She had uh, leukemia, but it was treatable. She had a neuropathy, but uh, she wasn't taking her pain control. And what really was going on was she finally had the pretext that she wanted because she was a very depressed person, real terrible family issues and so forth. And um, when she killed herself, I asked her executrix to send me her suicide file. Frances uh, was the most organized person I'd ever met. And sure enough, she had a suicide file, and inside it uh, were these Hemlock Quarterlies, as they were called, which was a quarterly newsletter the Hemlock Society at that time published, basically proselytizing for suicide and teaching people how to do it. Uh, And they, for example, uh, in these quarterlies, uh, they had the list of drugs to take and the uh, toxicity levels. And Francis had underscored in yellow the most toxic ones. They taught her how to use a plastic bag over her head after she took the pills, which is what she did. Actually, she paid a cousin $5,000, I later found out, to be there with her. And I suspect they put the plastic bag over her head, but I don't know that. And um, she also there were also these uh, stories that were very disturbing, proselytizing for suicide. One of them I remember to this day and realize that's now more than 30 years ago. And it in the uh, it said, 
My loved one laughed and giggled and seemed to relish the experience. I mean, that sound you heard was my head exploding because we were talking about suicide. And I was very upset about this. And at that time, uh, I had developed uh, the ability to get myself published uh, uh, in various places. And I wrote a piece for Newsweek magazine, a warning about this euthanasia movement about which I knew little, uh, called The Whispers of Strangers. And if people want to read it, it's available online. Just type in my name, Wesley J. Smith, comma, Whispers of Strangers in a search bar, and it'll come up. And I talked about Francis. And then I I warned that if we come to accept euthanasia and assisted suicide, we'll end up, for example, uh, harvesting organs, as I said, quote, a plum to society. And I thought it was going to be a one-off. I was very happy writing books with Ralph Nader. He had been my teenage hero when I was a, a, a young, uh, you know, an adolescent boy in the in the 60s when he emerged. And um, then the hate mail came rolling in <laughs> and realized this is when, if you wanted to tell somebody you hope they died of cancer, uh, they somebody had to write something on a piece of paper and and put it in something called an envelope and actually pay for the privilege by putting on a stamp and mailing it uh, because this was before email. And I received about 150 letters in response to that piece, which ran in June of 1993, by the way. And uh, about 125 of them, I would say, were were really nasty hate mail. And I remember thinking, what happened to my culture and where was I when it happened? Because I didn't think what I wrote was particularly controversial. And then I realized that something had gone on. And I was contacted by a group called the International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force, Rita Marker. Some of your viewers and listeners may know her. Um, and she asked me to uh, for permission to publish my piece in their newsletter. And I said, of course. And I said, are you aware of what these people are about? And she said, yes, Wesley, we know. But do you know? And she said, yes, Wesley, we know. And I, I became so upset about what was going on. And I read her book, uh, it's called Deadly Compassion, which was uh, very gentle, actually, that I thought I needed to engage this issue. And uh, I offered uh, Rita 10% of my time. And she started to send me packets of clippings. And this is again, before the internet. So it was a uh, slow mail. Uh, every two or three days, I'd get a packet of clippings from around the country and around the world about this movement. And I, I've started to bone up and, and because I had the ability to be on television, radio, give speeches and so forth, Rita started making great use of me. I hope it was great anyway. And, um, uh, pretty soon I was doing it 50% of the time. And then Ralph asked me, uh, you know, why was I spending so much time on euthanasia? When I explained it to him, he said, yes, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, gave me the blessing to go out and, uh, engage this issue, which I did. That's and awesome. I have been ever since, among other issues, but it's been 30 years. I can't believe it. And what are you doing now, specifically? Well, I'm the uh, I'm the uh, uh, head of the or the chairman of the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, uh, where we stand up for human dignity and and uh, discuss human obligations and responsibilities. And uh, I engage in bio the debates over bioethics, uh, uh, anti-humanism, and the environmental movement. Uh, anti-humanism and animal rights movement, which we contrast with animal welfare. Those are not the same things. Uh, that may be the subject for a different interview. Uh, and uh, try to uh, stand up for um, the sanctity of life and our 
duties to each other, duties to the to have a proper stewardship of the environment and so forth, uh, and um, lecture, write, uh, and so forth. So uh, that's what I'm doing. And part of what I still do is fight euthanasia and assisted suicide. I actually asked some people, hey, I'm going to be interviewing Wesley J. Smith. Any questions for him? So this is more of a personal question, but somebody wanted to know how you uh, handle the fact that you are a very public figure for a very controversial topic. Like it started with hate mail. Like it started with like 125 letters of hate mail. So how do you navigate that, that, um, I guess, attention? Well, I wouldn't say that I'm an A-lister. <laughs> you well, know, people sure, don't, I, people, but, when I'm walking down the street, people don't stop and point. Um, but they were already sending you letters, you know, 30 years That's true. <laughs> and, you know, I do get hate mail and, and that kind of thing. It just comes with the territory. You grow thick skin. And part of the ability to not let that phase me uh, is uh, when I practice law. Uh, because when you practice law, I was a trial lawyer. And uh, that those uh, skills are, uh, certainly helped me in this advocacy. And you learn to uh, be able to take a step back and think objectively about what's happening and not get too emotionally engaged. Now, it took some time. I, I, <laughs> I remember once I was on a um, book tour and I was actually here. I live near Washington, D.C. now. And I was in Washington and Armstrong Williams had a talk TV show and I was on talk TV and uh, at this time was in the 90s. Jack Kevorkian uh, was, you know, assisting suicides and so forth and getting away with it. And uh, as I was doing the talk TV, I was, you know, a call came in uh, and it was somebody defending Kevorkian. And so you're supposed to look into the camera when you're talking on talk TV, just like, you know, if you do a talking head interview, you look into a camera. And uh, so I'm looking into the camera and uh, like I am now. And I'm answering, and behind the camera, the producer was, I don't know if you can see that, he's going, well, more, 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 more. And so I was going, blah, 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 more, 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 more. And I thought, boy, I really kicked it. That was really good. Then I saw the tape. Oh, and I look like a madman with my eyes closed. <laughs> more passion. And I thought, well, no one is going to listen to me. And I learned, uh, particularly on uh, uh, this side of the of the issue, you cannot get angry because it doesn't work. It may be a double standard, but it is what it is. And you have to deal with the double standards in the, in uh, Sanctity of Life advocacy the way a rocket scientist does gravity. It's just part of the milieu. And so that taught me a very valuable lesson. Stay calm. Keep a sense of humor if you can. Of course, speak uh, bluntly. And I learned this from Ralph to be, speak bluntly and hopefully uh, with an active uh, lexicon, uh, but um, always uh, do your best to, to stay within the lines of what you know to be true and so forth. Uh, so um, I don't know if that answers your question, but it does. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually educate teens specifically, and I have to give them, you know, courage to actually be bold and uh, because it's not cool to be pro-life for the teens. And no, so in fact, uh, for young people, it's incredibly uh, courageous. I once was giving a speech. Uh, I don't tend to get involved too much in abortion, but I was giving a speech on William and Mary college uh, in, uh, I don't remember the year, but that's in Virginia. 
and the day before a pro-life student had been handing out uh, literature and behind her, they'd set up some crosses to represent the dead uh, babies who'd been killed in abortion. And somebody came up, a student, another student, and just punched her, cold cocked her. And nothing was done. The administration didn't care. And I remember thinking at that time, boy, these high school and college kids who were, you know, really pushing against the uh, tide have a tremendous courage. Yeah. I've had teens get death threats or be told to kill themselves, which is relevant. Yeah. We're talking yeah. about. Um, could you explain who Revork, Revork, I'm not even going to be able to say his name, Revorkian is? Because I think that I have a lot of young adults who are not going to know about him. Jack Revorkian, uh was a, um, he's deceased now, Jack Kevorkian was a pathologist who uh, couldn't hold a job anymore uh, and became an assisted suicide activist. Uh, what he did was he started assisting the suicides of, of people in Michigan, uh, and he'd use um, carbon monoxide quite a bit. And he uh, came out with this uh, su assisted suicide machine, and he became quite a media sensation. And he helped kill uh, more than 100 people. I mean, he was very defiant. Uh, he was, he was uh, um, I think, mentally disturbed because he had the nickname Dr. Death. Dr. Death wasn't because of assisted suicide. It's because in medical school, he would haunt the, the hospital wards for people who were dying and then take pictures and look into their eyes when they were dying. And he was obsessed with death. Uh, and he uh, he had an attorney named uh, Jeffrey Figer, uh, who I debated on things like Good Morning America and other TV shows, who just refused to kind of abide by the normal legal niceties and would turn every uh, court uh, case against Kevorkian into kind of a uh, circus. And Kevorkian was found not guilty at least four times of assisted suicide that he knew he had done. And the, the reason the jury kind of nullified the law was, oh, they were suffering and it was their choice. That kind of stuff was quite potent. Eventually, uh, Kevorkian uh, was found guilty of murder because he lethally injected somebody with ALS named Thomas Woke took it to 60 Minutes, and aired it on television. And it became very clear that he was not actually in it for the patient, uh, although his people weren't patients, they were they were subjects. He was conducting um, a campaign that had nothing to do with treating them. He didn't know how to, he was a pathologist. He had not treated a patient, didn't know about pain control, hadn't done any of the kind of caring that doctors do. And there's nothing wrong with being a pathologist. But he had no training in these diseases outside of medical school decades before. Uh, so, uh, but then he would decide who would live and who would die and this kind of thing. And um, his real goal, which he wrote about in Prescription Medicide, it was a book and it's still available, was to conduct human experimentation on the people he was euthanizing. That was his obsession. And he said it quite clearly and specifically in the book. And I've, if people want to look up Jack of Orkin, comma, Wesley J. Smith, you'll see a, find a lot of columns I wrote at the time. His obsession was experimenting on people as they were dying. He called it obitiatry. He made up a term for it. And yet the media turned him into a hero um, because they wouldn't talk about that. They would just talk about, oh, he's helping people who are suffering. The media had a narrative, and nothing was going to take them off that narrative. 
And eventually uh, he did about 10 years in jail. And then when he got out, I was appalled because he was getting $50,000 a speech. And eventually uh, he died a natural death and didn't commit assisted suicide, even though he had always said he would. Interesting. Just kind of makes you kind of queasy, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, Jack Kevorkian made me very queasy. And it made me realize that he could be turned into a hero as somebody as macabre and ghoulish as Kevorkian was, could be turned into a public hero, told me really that something had happened to the culture. And I still don't understand where was I when it happened. Yeah. So just in case our listeners don't know, can you explain euthanasia and assisted suicide and the the difference, but also the argument against either of these options? Sure. I, I don't think there is a difference in the sense of morality or in the sense of the abandonment that both represent. It's like the left leg following the right leg. But technically speaking, in terms of the debate, assisted suicide is when, uh, and we're usually talking about a doctor um, prescribing a lethal overdose of drugs for the patient to take themselves. And so the last act that causes death is taken by the person who dies. That's assisted suicide. Euthanasia, the last act that causes the person to die is generally done by the, and again, we're talking in the medical context here, doctors are certified nurse practitioners, lethal jabs, lethal administration of drugs. And so um, uh, euthanasia is technically homicide, which is not illegal where it's legal, <laughs> but homicide means, you know, killing a human being. Uh, you've killed a human being and assisted suicide is suicide in the sense that um, the person who dies uh, takes the drugs and dies because of self-administration. Can you explain what those drugs actually do to the person? Because, of course, everyone paints it as this peaceful, peaceful death. And um, I think it's important for people to know what happens medically to their bodies. Well, they they go unconscious and, and eventually with the drug overdose, um, their heart will stop. Now, with assisted suicide, sometimes that takes a long time. Uh, and sometimes uh, there have been a few cases where the person didn't die. Uh, and there have been con uh, cases of convulsions and this kind of thing. With lethal jab euthanasia, it's far more lethal in the sense of quick uh, because it, part of it is a uh, muscle um, paralyzer. And so the heart um, is a muscle, uh, stops after they've been rendered unconscious. But there have even been cases with euthanasia of, of uh, you know, I always think, oh, harmful side effects. No, harm is the killing. Um, but there have been cases where the killing did not just go in that smooth, easy way that you've described. Do the their throats also burn out? That's what I have heard too, that their throats I, I've not heard that, but, um, you know, the point is that people are made dead. And uh, that is not care. That is killing. And it is abandonment. Uh, because the reason people want euthanasia and assisted suicide really has nothing or very little, we'll say, to do with uh, um, suffering that can't be controlled. That's the selling point. The sales is, uh, you know, the bloody flag of, of the sell, the sales pitch is that you'll you'll be sick and the doctors won't be able to take care of you and you'll you'll have this terrible pain and suffering. And um, and that's what causes people to tend to support it. But when it's actually legal. Uh, the reason people do that isn't because of uncontrollable pain. In fact, um, it's usually done because of existential reasons, things like lose fear of losing dignity, things of fear of losing the ability to engage in enjoyable activities, worries about being a burden on your family. 
and these kinds of things. And these are very important, of course, but they can be uh, uh, remediated. They can be alleviated. There can be interventions like suicide prevention to help people get past that despair, which we can all understand and realize that life continue, can continue to be worth living, whether one is terminally ill or not, uh, and realize it's not about terminal illness. It's it's about killing as a means of ending suffering. And once that agenda is accepted, terminal illness has nothing to do with it because there are a lot of people who suffer more who are not terminally ill and for a longer period. And so you've seen in countries where euthanasia gets very quickly accepted by the population, it moves very fast from the terminally ill to the chronically ill to the frail elderly to people with disabilities and the mentally ill. And you see that in Belgium, Netherlands, and Canada as, as just three examples. In the United States, the laws have all basically been loosened. Uh, most states that have passed it, I think it's 10 states, including D.C. Um, but um, so it, re it remains technically a terminal illness, but that's only because this country has not yet embraced the movement. If it ever did, I know, because I know what these people believe, uh, that um, the terminal illness limitation would disappear. And even with the terminal illness limitation, six months left to live is the usual um, you know, requirement. First, um, it's all based on self-reporting by doctors. Second, we know several cases where people lived years after receiving a um, lethal prescription, and you don't know when someone has six months left to live. We don't die by the numbers. And there, for example, hospice, you're supposed to be six months left to live. And there have been many cases of people who not only uh, didn't die within six months, they got kicked out of hospice because they didn't die at all. And so it seems to me that the proper approach, whenever anyone is suicidal for any reason, whether it's because they're ill, they have a disability, their child has died, their business has collapsed, whatever it might be, is suicide prevention, engagement, helping people through that darkness. And that's what's lost with this movement because it's transforming suicide from uh, something that uh, we want to prevent and help people stay with us to a supposed public health good and a medical application, killing as, as medicine. And that's very dangerous. And it, and I think it leads to a tremendous amount of harm, which is why I still write a lot about it, particularly in um, at the corner at National Review uh, and also other places, and why I still lecture quite a bit on this issue. It's ironic because you said that the Hemlock Society became compassion, right? Compassion and choice. Suffer with, yeah, to suffer yeah. with, but we're not right. suffering with you. You're on your own. You are a burden. Just die. <laughs> um, well, when I, my mother died of Alzheimer's disease, and my wife and I brought her into our home for the last six months of her life, and there were some very difficult nights. My mother had that uh, phenomenon called sundowning, where during the day she'd be this sweet little old lady. She, she died at age 99. Uh, and uh, she'd say, what day is it Tuesday, mom? Then two minutes later, what day is it Tuesday, mom? Um, but at night, uh, it was a totally different thing. And uh, it was very, very difficult. And there were times if I had said, my mother had said to me, if she'd said, I just want to be commit suicide. And I had said to my mother, well, mom, it's your choice. What would that have told my mother? That would have told my mother that she was making my life miserable and that I was better off if she were dead. And that would have been a terrible, terrible thing 
to do to her, even if I, I was trying to support her as many families do, you know, they don't know what to do when they're requested this. And I also think people need to think about what kind of a situation is it when you ask your family to witness your suicide? We don't talk about that very often. And uh, you see the media normalizing it. There are suicide parties that are written about and uh, family members are being told, well, if you really want to support your loved one, you have to let that person die uh, on their own terms is the, is the phraseology. Well, if, if we want to let people die on their own terms, then why should you limit it to people who are sick? Because anyone who's suicidal wants to die on their own terms, and why shouldn't we support that? Uh, and, and I can't think of a logical reason not to if you buy into that agenda. In fact, in Germany now, the highest, uh, the constitutional court there, the highest court in the land has said that there is a fundamental constitutional right in Germany to commit suicide for whatever reason, not based on illness or disability, any reason whatsoever, because it's personal autonomy. There's a fundamental liberty right to be assisted in suicide. This is a court ruling. And there's a fundamental ancillary um, uh, constitutional right in Germany to assist. And that's called, I call that death on demand, which is where this eventually leads. Because if you're going to say that uh, killing is an answer to suffering, and none of the laws require objective suffering, it's whatever the person who wants to die says is uh, the suffering sufficient to want to be dead, then I don't see any way you eventually don't end up at death on demand. Because who are you to say that some suffering isn't uh, uh, enough to uh justify preventing your suicide? Who are you to say that um, that someone shouldn't help and so forth and so on? So this is a very dangerous thing. And and, and when people say, oh, well, but it's modern. Well, you know, the, uh, perhaps it is. And some people say, well, it's just religious. Well, no, the Hippocratic Oath was put together 500 years before Christ. And the Hippocratic physicians knew that assisted suicide or euthanasia was wrong, and they proscribed it, prevented it among Hippocratic doctors. There's a reason for that. It's because to do so is abandonment. And even if it's not intended that way, that's the ultimate outcome. You mentioned Belgium and a couple other countries there. Can we talk about what's happening around the world? Because we kind of tend to follow that in America. It just kind of trickles in slowly. Sure. So what is happening culturally and, and like politically, especially in Canada, because we are kind of just slowly uh, being influenced by them too. Well, Canada's our closest cultural cousins, and that's what makes what's going on there so alarming. Uh, I have uh, not been shocked about euthanasia and assisted suicide you know, for a long time. But the enthusiasm with which Canada embraced lethal injections really did stun me. Um, let's start with the Netherlands. Netherlands has been allowing euthanasia uh, for some time. They had a kind of a decriminalized system, and then they legal, legalized it early in the 21st century. And uh, Dutch doctors have gone from killing the terminally ill to killing the chronically ill to killing people with disabilities, the frail elderly, people with mental illnesses. Uh, they, uh, Belgium has done the same thing with even more alacrity than uh, than the Netherlands. Canada uh, legalized euthanasia in 2016, and they have already uh, caught up to Can uh, the Netherlands and euthanasia and Belgium. And remember my old prediction, it will end up with organ harvesting. That's precisely what happened. In 1993, when I said, you know, we'll have organ harvesting as a plum to society, 
I was accused of being an alarmist. Oh, he's an hysteric. You know, he's uh, he's just uh, 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 overdoing it. It'll never happen. And now it is happening in those three countries. And I'm told, well, of course we should do that. If they're going to be dead, we might as well get some good out of them. So everything that I predicted has come to pass. And what's really remarkable is that uh, in Belgium and the Netherlands, sometimes the people who are killed and then harvested are mentally ill, not otherwise sick. And so you have uh, a, the the answer, supposed the treatment for mental illness being to kill the patient. And, and you have a situation where, you know, people with mental illnesses can have a very difficult time getting through the night and the ability to donate your organs can make one think, well, my death will have greater value than my life. And that could be the tipping point that pushes somebody over the edge into that decision to be killed uh, and euthanized. Uh, last week, as we're recording this, I wrote a piece in Belgium. A 16-year-old girl was with a brain tumor was euthanized for and, and organ harvested. But before they organ harvested her, they put her in deep sedation and intubated her and studied her organs, uh, probably through imagery and blood tests and this kind of thing, in the ICU for 36 hours. She was unconscious for 36 hours before they killed her and took her organs. Well, that that unconsciousness wasn't for the benefit of the patient. It was for the benefit of the organs and for the benefit of potential recipients because they were reaching out to find people who might be compatible that that's a terrible uh, utilitarian use. And the girl said that one of the reasons she wanted euthanasia was because she would have the ability to help other people. Well, you know, I mean, on one hand, that's nice altruism, but on the other hand, if they, she hadn't had that ability, she might still be alive today and she might be happy to still be alive today in Canada, uh, in Ontario, Canada, uh, the um, Organ Harvesting Association or the Organ Donation Association that um, contacts people, you know, for to donate organs are actually advised by doctors who have agreed to euthanize a patient before the death, and then they contact the the, the person who's going to be killed to ask for their organs. I mean, t- and and these are people who do not get suicide prevention. So a person goes to a doctor, says, I want to die because, uh, let's say, I've I've got a long-term disability. Terminal illness is not required in Canada, and next year they will also open the door to killing the mentally ill. Uh, And the doctor says, okay, I'll kill you. Let's uh, set it for three weeks. The doctor then has to call the the organ donation. It's called Trillium, I think, as the organization to say, well, in three weeks, uh, John Jones will be dead. And then they will call John Jones and say, can we have your liver? I mean, I'm sure it's not quite put that crassly, but that's what's going on. And it's a very disturbing thing to me because it creates a utilitarian benefit to society for people to be killed, along with the uh, cost savings in terms of health care, particularly once you move beyond terminal illness to people with long-term health issues that can be expensive to uh, provide care for or treatment for. So money starts to get, uh, in, you know, bound up in all this. And uh, in Canada, the one of the newspapers even wrote that uh, euthanasia has become a boon to organ donation. Well, that to me violates the uh, 
very sacred obligations to have ethical organ donation and organ transplant medicine. And one of them is you don't kill people for their organs. Uh, the doctors would say, well, we're not killing them for their organs. Well, yeah, maybe you are, you know, once that it gets to be known, that's part of it. Yeah. And it's a, it's very disturbing, particularly for weak and vulnerable people who feel like they're burdens, who are worried about uh, perhaps losing the certain capacities and so forth. You've also seen in Canada uh, people with disabilities who can't access proper services asking for euthanasia. You've had um, a woman, an elderly woman, uh, who was uh, in a nursing home, and there was the first COVID lockdown, and she survived that. And then there was going to be a second COVID lockdown, and the idea of being isolated caused her such despair, she asked for euthanasia and received it. And here's the bitter irony. Because she died, her family was allowed to be with her. But if she had chosen to live, her family would not have been allowed to be with her. And that just shows you the twisted, uh, topsy-turvy ethics and morality that comes into play once you decide that killing is an acceptable answer to suffering. It just tells them, well, you're actually better off dead. You're much more useful to society. Um, That's certainly the implied message. And even if uh, somebody doesn't say that, I'm sure that person might be thinking it. Can you talk about MAID also? And Made made is um, is a euphemism. It's medical assistance in dying or medical aid in dying, and they call it made because they don't want to uh, be very clear about what's going on. Oh, we he was provided made. Well, what that means in Canada is he was provided a lethal injection. In the U.S., it means he was provided or she was provided a lethal uh, overdose of drugs by prescription. So, so what what uh, the the euthanasia movement runs on euphemisms and gooey language, and things like choice and compassion, but what they're trying to do is hide the brutality of what's actually going on, and it seems to me if you have to hide what you're advocating behind gooey euphemisms that seek to deflect uh, from knowledge and a full understanding, then maybe there's something wrong with your agenda. In Canada, didn't they also have a vote where they voted that euthanasia could be a good solution to poverty as well and homelessness? Because we have homelessness. It wasn't a vote. It was a poll. Oh, a poll. Yeah, a poll. And it's very disturbing because it shows what happens once euthanasia is legalized, people's mindset changes and, and because it's been redefined as good. Homicide has been defined as a good. And so they uh, took a poll, and I don't have the the sheet in front of me, but approximately 32%, or maybe it was even 37% of, of the Canadians who answered, I think 32, said that euthanasia was an accept, poverty was an acceptable reason for euthanasia. Uh, uh, 30, I think it was 38% said that homelessness was an acceptable answer for youth, uh, for, it was an acceptable reason for euthanasia. Uh, 50% said disability was an acceptable reason for euthanasia. So you can see now that certainly, uh, and again, I don't have the the percentages, maybe a little more or less than what I just described, because I don't have it in front of me, but a good chunk, not a majority, but a good chunk of Canadians have actually said that if you're suffering because of homelessness or poverty and you want to be killed, give you that injection. It's really a, a very disturbing trend. Yeah, we're not going to help you, but we'll help you die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I just found out that someone in my life is planning on taking a pill when she 
she's done. It's more than a pill. It's it's quite a concoction. They have right. to crush it and so forth. Yeah. But she firmly believes that she has a right to go out how she wants. Um, so how do you recommend, because I'm sure I'm not the only one, how do we respond to people with this mindset? This is a real issue because a lot of, uh, and I, I often tell even people in the deepest red estates where assisted suicide is probably not going to be legalized if it ever is, for, at least for a long time, that that doesn't mean they're they're free from this issue. Because what happens if Grandma Jones in California, where it is legal, calls you, or you, let's say Grandma Jones, uh, your sister calls you, and your sister says, well, you know, Grandma Jones has cancer. Um, she's decided that rather than, uh, you know, ride it through to the end, she's going to die next Tuesday, and she wants you to be here. Will you come? Well, that puts you in a very terrible uh, conflict. Number one, if you say no, then you will be accused of abandoning Grandma Jones. But if you say yes, then you're validating that decision. And in a sense, you can become morally complicit in that decision. And so that's the kind of thing you hope you never face. But it strikes me that what you do is talk to that person Tell them you love them, tell them you support them, but tell them you can't support them in that decision. And that if there's anything you can do to help them not do that, let you know. Uh, because, you know, um, it's just not right. And the, they may want to die today, they may want to die tomorrow, but three weeks from now, maybe they won't want to die. I've actually known people with terminal illnesses. In fact, a man with ALS, um, I was a hospice volunteer for a while, and uh, um, Bob um, had ALS and was dying, and he told me, uh, this was back in the 90s, that uh, he had wanted to go to Kevorkian. Uh, and Kevorkian was happy to assist the suicides of people with ALS. But his family wouldn't take him. And because of that, he said, I came out of the fog, and I'm so glad to be alive. And so even in that difficult circumstance, as he adjusted to what was going on and his decline, he lost that suicidal ideation. Now, his family could have taken him to Kevorkian and patted themselves on the back as, oh, how we really cared about Bob. But by saying no, they were actually loving Bob even more because he was able to actually spend the last several months of his life when I knew him enjoying life. And he actually wrote a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle against euthanasia because he said it made him feel very marginalized that people said, well, if I was like you, I'd want to be dead too. He said it made me feel like I was being pushed out of the way he put it. I'm being pushed out of the bright lit boulevards into a dark alley. Because he was being told, your life is done, when actually dying isn't dead. Dying is a stage of living. And a lot of people who go through that, and, and uh, I saw it with my father as a, another example, a man who died of cancer, um, actually tremendously benefited from that experience in the sense of who they were as human beings. Obviously, he didn't want to die when he died. But as a human being, he grew and uh, had such a, a tremendous, um, I don't know how to put it, but he had a uh, he had an, an experience that left him a better man than when he started it. And he would have told you that. And it's uh, something to see when you when you go through hospice, 
how people can actually thrive in, in those last months of life. You had a great story at the National Right to Life Convention about somebody who actually really did want to die, um, didn't want to go through suffering, was in hospice and would tell you that oh. he wanted to die. But then the neighbors and the friends showed up and you Ernie. kept casseroles. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk about Ernie. him? Yeah. Uh, Ernie was actually my first patient uh, as a hospice volunteer. I, I volunteered for a couple of years and uh I was nervous. I went to see Ernie. I, I got about eight weeks of training uh, with hospice. And at that time, no hospice involved was involved with assisted suicide. In fact, we were trained uh, that uh, if somebody was suicidal, tell the hospice team because part of the hospice services was suicide prevention. And that's how it was specifically designed by Dame Cecily Saunders, one of the great medical humanitarians of the 20th century, who cre created the modern hospice movement. And I was able to interview her uh, in person in London uh, for my book, Culture of Death. And she told me the reason she made suicide prevention an essential aspect of hospice was because first you could, when they when people receive the proper care, they often lose the desire for suicide. But second, she said, if you uh, assist the suicide of one of my hospice patients, you're denying their equal dignity. And I think that's absolutely true. So I, I went to see Ernie, and Ernie was uh, uh, lived in this great old uh, kind of Victorian house. And uh, his son was living with him and his daughter-in-law to take care of him. And he had a very terrible congestive heart failure. And um, they introduced me to Ernie and closed the door in his bedroom. And as soon as the door was closed, Ernie fell into my arms and he said, I want to die. I want to die. I want to die. And I said, Ernie, why do you want to die? I'm a burden. I'm a burden. I'm a burden. I said, Ernie, you're not a burden. Your son is loving you. Your daughter-in-law, I'm a burden. And he, he really, if at that time in, I was in California at that time, assisted suicide was not legal. And if he, but if he could have gotten those pills, he would have taken them. Well, I would come to see Ernie once a week. And over time, I watched his demeanor change from that kind of despair to a much happier demeanor. People were coming over uh, with, you know, souffles and cookies and all of this stuff. And, and Ernie grew into a much um, cheerier person, shall we say. And there was one fellow, uh, I don't remember his name. I'll call him Joe. Uh, and uh, Joe was an old friend of Ernie's. And Joe would come over all the time. I, I saw Ernie on different days of the week. I saw him once a week, but it wasn't always the same day. And every time I went to see Ernie, Joe came to see Ernie. I mean, it almost, I'm sure maybe once it didn't work or something, but it seemed to me every time I was there, Joe came by. And I would, uh, leave the two older gentlemen alone and, and go to a different room so they could talk. And Joe had this very big, heavy voice. And he would say, Ernie, you got to fight, Ernie. You got to fight. Every time. And so, <laughs> as I put it, eventually I lost Ernie. He didn't die. He got better. And he got kicked out of hospice. Uh, and uh, the last time I saw him, he was an Italian gentleman. He He played a mandolin solo for me. And then he uh, said to he, he looked at me and he pointed and he said, Wesley, you know, am I a friend of Joe? And I said, yeah, Ernie, I know Joe. What about him? And he said, you watch out for Joe. I said, why? He's an undertaker. <laughs> I just, I cracked up. 
But the whole Ernie thing is really illustrative of what I'm talking about. He was in despair. He wanted to die. He really did. I told the hospice team, of course, about that. And I don't know what interventions they engaged, but I'm sure they did something. And over time, he got past the darkness and was living his life. And even though most people who enter hospice don't necessarily get kicked out of hospice, he's certainly not alone in that regard. He ended up living, I don't know how long he lived, because once I, he was no longer my patient, I didn't see him. But Ernie had a life to continue. And he had a life to continue because people kept telling him how much they loved him, how much that he, how important he was to them, and how, uh, and, and just let him know he was included in life and not excluded and certainly not a burden. So I think Ernie's story is very important uh, because it shows the difference between abandonment here. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course you want to die Ernie. Here are your pills to let's, let's keep you engaged in life. And whether you die now or whether you die later, you're important. I was going to ask you what we can do to create like a ripple effect that will change the culture. But I think that's it. It's like, we have to remember that no one wants to be alone and that we should actually be compassionate and suffer with people and um, be there for each other and lift each other up. Yeah. And a lot of times people unintentionally, shall we say, abandon people who, who are dying because they say, well, I don't know what I'll say. I hope I don't say the wrong thing, this kind of thing. Overcome that. And a lot of times what you're really afraid of is how you will react because it's difficult. It's emotionally fraught to be with somebody you care so much about and know that they're probably reaching the end of the road. But it's important. In fact, people need their friends more at that time than any time in their lives. And again, dying isn't dead. Dying is a stage of living. I'm going to quote you on that. I'm just going to remember to tell that to uh, (laughs) all the teens. Um, So do you have any recommendations for getting more involved in this movement and finding resources to stay educated on this topic? Because I don't feel like there's a whole lot of resources. It's like not necessarily well known yet. We're, We're getting there. But I'm I'm thinking in my mind the teams that I'm working with. But yeah, uh, and this, it's interesting that the um, opponents and proponents of euthanasia-assisted suicide have the similar complaint. People don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. Uh, people really would just you know rather not uh, deal with it at all. And and the people who are activists wanting to legalize it complain about that. And, and uh, sometimes I do too, because I think it's really important. There are uh, organizations, for example, if uh, somebody uh, is disabled, there are disability rights organizations that fight assisted suicide like Not Dead Yet. There's the Patients' Rights Council, which is what the uh, International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force is now called. Uh, there's, there are other organizations, uh, pro-life groups, of course, uh, fighting against uh, legalizing assisted suicide. And I think in terms, since this is a pro-life show, um, one of my disappointments, honestly, with the pro-life movement is that people have not been as emotionally um, engaged in the issue uh, as they are abortion. Uh, and I understand why. I mean, you know, a, a baby and 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 so forth and so on and, and innocent and and that kind of thing. But if you're going to say you're pro-life, that's a that's a profound thing to say. It can't be I'm pro some lives, 
I'm pro-life. And if you're pro-life, then at some point you have to be just as caring and, and wanting to protect the life of uh, the person dying of AIDS, the elderly woman in the nursing home, somebody with uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, uh, the mentally ill. Um, we have to be as engaged in saving their lives as so many pro-lifers are in saving the lives of unborn babies. I mean, really, it, it's not anti-abortion, it's pro-life. And if, I mean, if you're just anti-abortion, fine, you're anti-abortion. But um, pro-life is important. And it's also important for, I think, pro-lifers to understand that they have to work uh, in coalition with people who may not agree with them about abortion. This is particularly true of the disability rights movement, which tends to be politically liberal, I'm speaking generally, tends to be uh, not pro-life on abortion, uh, but but is really uh, adamant against assisted suicide and euthanasia because they perceive quite correctly that they're the targets. They're the ultimate targets because the reason uh, people you know, may want assisted suicide are issues that disabled people deal with on a continual basis. And that's why the disability rights people have been so important in this coalition, because in states that are, let's say, not pro-life states, they come in with a... Um, a position that isn't, well, you're anti-abortion and this is really just the abortion decision. And a lot of people um, will say, well, I'm not, I'm pro-choice and that's it. But when disability rights folk come in, it actually counters that kind of statement. And I've had arguments with some pro-life people saying, well, we can't work in con uh, in connection with people who don't agree with us on abortion. Well, sure you can. You don't have to, I wouldn't, I'm certainly not saying compromise your position on abortion, but you can set that aside for the moment while you're working on assisted suicide. And the reason it has not swept the nation, in my opinion, is that those coalitions have formed in states where it has been stopped. And that needs to continue. Mm -hmm. I always tell my teens or young adults, um, we are womb to tomb people. So especially when I'm talking to teenagers, they might not even be able to vote on abortion yet. So I'm like, you know what you could do? You could go volunteer and go to a senior home. Um, I took some kids Christmas caroling to a, a senior home and it just brought so much joy. So exactly right. In, in my pro-life presentations about abortion, I'm like, you know what you can do for the pro-life movement? Take care of the, the, the elderly who are. I think that's very good. I think that's very important because one of the reasons, one of the worst things uh, the people that I talked to who, uh, for example, Bob, my friend, was the isolation. The thing he said that made him want to go to Kevorkian was the isolation. In fact, he uh, he went to a, his, he was Catholic and he went to his priest and the priest would only give him five minutes. And he was so distraught, uh, it drove him out of the church. And then what happened uh, was at some point, some uh, later day saints knocked on his door, you know, the missionaries, Mormon missionaries. And they said, we want you. And he became Mormon. And what the Mormon church did was tremendous for him. They, they helped him go to the temple and stuff and do whatever happens at the temple. I certainly don't know because I'm not that faith, but they also had uh, his, he had, he couldn't work anymore. And his, and his wife had to go work and they wanted to keep him at home. And the only way they could do that was if during the middle of the day, he was able to relieve himself. And the church, his local church, had what's called a woman's auxiliary. And two married ladies came 
with with a plastic bottle that they would that would be run up his he would wear a tracksuit run up his pant legs just so he could urinate now that's a very simple thing but it was so important to bob and it allowed him to stay at home and the other thing that that church did for him apparently uh all the uh you know, uh, active duty, I don't know what term to use, but um, Mormon men are supposed to give sermons Mm -hmm. at the local meeting hall. And he was unable to go to the local meeting hall because of his disability. And so they brought out a video equipment team and videotaped him at home giving a sermon. And he said, I felt so included. And his desire to be dead evaporated because those that church took him in, welcomed him, and embraced him, and it made a complete difference in his life, helped him in every possible way, so that he ended up living to the last day. And when he did die, ALS people, if you get proper medical care, you know, people, the euthanasia people say, they're going to choke. Well, no, he didn't choke. He got proper medical care, and he died peacefully in his sleep. Uh, and I was honored to give his eulogy. Uh, so um, th- this is important what you're talking about. Be present for people. Go visit people. Let them know you care. Let them know it matters that they're alive. And let them know that you're with them for everything. Uh, but I would suggest you do not participate in assisted suicide because that's telling them, yes, even though you don't mean it, I guess I am better off dead. I was an English major. So I always want to have a thesis statement. And for all my pro-life presentations, I'm like, we all want to be seen, known, and loved. And that's the pregnant lady. And that's the elderly. And, you know, um, I think that's great. I'm hoping that. That's um, why the culture of life is such as much more um, profound. It seems to me than the culture of death, the culture of death says, yeah, these are, there are certain things that we just can't handle. Uh, Suffering is more than, than we should have to bear. And the answer is killing. Um, Culture of life says, no, the answer is compassion, as you said, which means to suffer with and be engaged with people when they're going through difficulties. And none of us knows, you know, where our limit might be. And, you know, something could happen that we feel and that fall into that darkness. And I hope if that ever happens to me, there's going to be my wife or other people who would say, Wesley, no, there's another way to go. Let's work to make your life meaningful rather than have you uh, give up in despair. Well, thank you so much for joining me, especially on a Friday evening. Um, I really enjoy this. I learned so much from you at the National Rights Life Convention. I enjoyed your talks. I even purchased it so I could re-listen to it because um, I we are trying to speak to more and more teens and young adults. That's about wonderful. It. Yeah, I'm so, glad to hear that. Yeah. So thank you so much for everything that you do and your bravery <laughs> um, speaking out. And, um, you know, police officers who run after a criminal down a dark alley are brave. I just talk and write. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that you have a great weekend. Well, thanks very much. You too. Hey, everybody. It's me again. I just want to thank you so much for listening. And I was thinking about this conversation a lot over the past couple weeks since I recorded it. And I just felt like I needed to add something before I wrap this episode up because I don't think that Wesley and I covered this enough. The fact that Some people choose euthanasia because they want to avoid suffering and they have a fear of suffering. And we talk about how, you know, dying is a part of life, 
But sometimes that dying can be gruesome and painful. So maybe somebody is considering euthanasia not because they're depressed or caring about being a burden as much as they care about the pain that they're going to feel or how they're going to maybe lose their memories or lose their dignity. So I, I want to say that's completely understandable. And I like totally have to admit, I don't want to think about my son or my daughter feeding me someday, you know. However, there is some beauty in the symmetry of our lives where we have to depend on someone when we are born and we often have to depend on someone when we are dying. And as Catholics, we try to unite our suffering to Christ's suffering and we offer up our suffering as prayer intentions or an acknowledgement that Christ suffered more than we could ever possibly imagine. But that argument doesn't usually fly for people who aren't Catholic. So after this conversation, I had to ask myself, why would someone who does not know and love God and has trust in God choose to suffer? I think there are a couple of reasons. One, suicide still devalues human life. Life is a gift and we should be grateful. We just had Veterans Day this weekend and I was thinking of the sacrifices that others have made for me. What does it say if I respond to the gift of life by ending it? Of course, some people will say it's not a gift anymore, it's a burden, but euthanasia is a slippery slope. Just like Wesley was talking about, how do we define suffering? If we can choose euthanasia or assisted suicide to avoid suffering, why can't I tell one of my teens who is suffering from depression to just end it? Lastly, we don't actually know how much time we have left, and we talked about that too briefly. We could have a couple of weeks left, or we could have a few years left. And what happens in the last few years of our lives? Hopefully and ideally, we get our priorities together and we spend time with the ones we love. When people receive bad news, uh, maybe bad news about a terminal disease, their response is to usually sort out their priorities to live better and take advantage of the time that they have left. They don't let little things bother them. They make sure that they express gratitude and love more often. So these are just things to think about, especially as we approach this topic and as per usual we want to approach these topics with people with love and compassion knowing that they may be afraid of suffering or maybe they've seen somebody very close to them suffer so they think that this is a compassionate choice so I hope that this episode helped a lot and I once again just thank you guys so much for listening and I please go ahead and follow me on social media at said fast podcast or Sammy Carroll and know that I'm praying for all of you. Thank you. Bye.